Well, one of the things that I absolutely love is seeing the way uh, different house churches are taking ownership. Was that not so cool to see them all come up at different times? I mean, I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. I don't know if you knew, they each were asked to submit questions that they were thinking and feeling. And so as the people that were coming up were the ones that asked those questions as it was forming. And to see God bring these strands together into one house church is just awesome. So I, I love that. That excites me to no end. Um, well, last week we celebrated the risen Christ. And as many people are asking in churches across the world uh, this morning, now what? Now what? It's a great question. What do we do with this? Now that the tomb is empty, how does that inform how we live as people of hope? And I can't imagine a more fitting response to now what than what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks. And it's this topic of justice. Some people call it social justice, but I like to call it just justice. Social or not, it's justice. And we're calling this time just living. What does it mean for us to live uh, justly in the world. And so we're going to look at this question, what is biblical justice and why should we care? Because we do care, we should care, but why should we care? So this morning we're going to look at an overview. What is justice? What is injustice? What is justice not? And how might we faithfully address the issues of injustice in the world in the name of Jesus? Now there's a lot of stuff about justice. and Justice is a hot topic today. And there's also a lot of misunderstanding and actually inaccuracy uh, regarding the issue of justice. And so we want to look at this not from a cultural hot topic, but from the lens of what does it mean to view this as something close to what God cares deeply about. And so that's what we're going to look into. But I, I, I want to be really honest with you because uh, there are a few things we need to acknowledge. The first thing is, Talking about justice makes people really emotional. And sometimes it makes people really emotional for all the good reasons, and sometimes it makes people emotional for all the wrong reasons. And so some of us may find us going, woohoo! And some of us may find us getting really defensive. And so Doug came up with this, this statement, and I think really is accurate and very important for us to remember as we think about this idea of what is biblical justice. And it's this, if we're honest, some of you will think that we've taken this topic too far. And if we're honest, some of you will think that we haven't taken this topic far enough. And so I, I want us to just acknowledge that up front, that this can be an emotional topic. And so as we jump into this, would you bow uh, with me in prayer as we think about our exploration of this? And Jesus, we know that you care about justice. We know that uh, the Father's heart is to care about justice. And so we would ask that you would be with us, that you would guide us, you would surprise us, you would imprint upon us things not just with our head and not just with our hearts, but also with our hands of showing how and where we might be involved. Lord, would you, uh, would you correct those things in our hearts and correct those things in my heart uh, where justice may be inaccurate and where we may be looking at justice through a lens that's different than the view that you see it through. And so may we catch your heart on this important issue of justice over these next several weeks and here for the next few minutes. It's with that that we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Now, for the sake of time, we could probably talk about this and discuss this for the next five hours. Now, we're not going to do that. In some ways, I wish we could. But one of the things I do want us to do, and why don't we put the questions up on the screen uh, there, Denise. We don't have time to spend a lot, uh, you know, to go through this. Even 20 minutes would be great. But here's what I'd like for us to do, just as we begin to think through what is justice, how much should we care about it, how are we involved in it, I want you to just pick one of those up there and turn to the person sitting next to you and spend just a moment discussing that. So what, you can pick a question different than the partner that is sitting next to you to discuss that. But let's take a few minutes, turn to the person next to you, uh, pick one, introduce yourself to them if you don't know them, and um, let's explore that together. Okay? You got your question? All right. Go. I want to just, I wish we could talk about this uh, all together, but I just want that to, to let our minds and hearts engage with this particular topic. Um, but if you remember before Easter, one of the things is we were ending our generosity series. We ended with the story of John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist when, when people say, you know, when he says repent and they say, what are we to do? His responses of generosity are connected to issues of justice. That when we talk about being generous people, it actually relates oftentimes to the idea of justice. And I've been thinking about this question particularly, what is the job or what is the role of our church? Next slide. What is God calling us to do as a church? And truthfully, it's this, to care the most about the things that Jesus cares the most about. That's our job. You know, I've got this really unique title, you know, I... Uh, Doug, you know, is full-time here. What is my job? I say I'm the cultural cultivator. People say, what in the world is that? And I say, it sounds all fancy and weird, but my job is just to make sure that we care the most about the things that Jesus cares the most about. And that's, that's what we're about. And that's what we want to be about. And what's undeniably clear is that God's heart burns for justice. Because as people of the risen Christ, it means if we're to take that seriously, that we're called to have a deep heart for that too. And God cares deeply about justice. We could spend the next hour just reciting passages of Scripture about God's heart for justice. One of the things that I love in Isaiah 61 very clearly, and I love it because it's so simple and blunt and to the point. Isaiah 61.8 I, the Lord, love justice. But clearly states it. He loves it. And truthfully, he hates it when people participate in injustice. God made us for community. And in the process of creating us, he stamped inside of us the Imago Dei, the image of God. He has stamped, he's placed eternity in the hearts of men and women, Ecclesiastes says. He stamped the image of God in each one of us. And so He cares about the dignity of every single person because His image is on these people, on us as image bearers. And so when people are inflicting things on image bearers that keep them from being who God intended them to be when He created them, that's injustice. And we have to realize that God does not sit passively on the sidelines when it comes to issues of injustice. He commanded the Israelites in the Old Testament to act differently than their foreign neighbors. And one of the w main ways they were to be unique and distinct and different from their neighbors is they were to do things that the other neighbors around them, other nations, didn't do. 
And that's to care for the alien, the foreigner, the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Because other cultures didn't do that. They disregarded those in the margins and said, nope, that's not something that's important to us. And God said, I care about them. They bear my image. And you are to do it differently. That's how people will know that you are belonging to me, that you care about those things. Bluntly stated, if we ignore justice, we ignore the very heart of God. And our worship, uh, this is a scary thing, but the Old Testament has a few different places where it says that our worship actually infuriates God if it is done at the expense and the neglect of our neighbor, especially those who are poor. And that has some implications for us. That and This is why it gets emotional. It makes us very uncomfortable. Now, Micah 6.8, some of you are familiar with this passage in Micah 6.8. This very simply wraps up what is it that God is calling us to. And I love this verse. Um, and many people I know have named their children after, uh, named Micah, their sons, because of Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What is required of us? I love those three things. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. And I love those adverbs in there. Justly and humbly. And you can even say mercifully. To love mercifully. But I love the fact what it says about mercy there. To love mercy. If I'm honest, there are times I really like mercy. I think mercy is a good idea. But it doesn't say that. It says that I'm to love mercy. We're called to love mercy. And I think it says that because if you love mercy, I don't see how you wouldn't be a merciful person. But, so we act justly, but make sure we do it mercifully. And, and I think that combination, the golden triangle of a life with God here, I think is really important all three. Because I don't know about you, there are those people who act justly and love mercy, mercy, but don't walk humbly with their God. And what happens? It becomes feel-good moralism and secular justice. There are those who love mercy and walk humbly with God, but act unjustly, which I think is very hard to actually love mercy if you're walking in a way that's unjust. And there are those who act justly and walk humbly with God, but don't love mercy. And what happens is that they become very angry people. And I think we've all come across people that care about justice, but who are just angry people. We need all three of those, God says, to honor Him in His heart. I want to encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, this is a passage some of you may be familiar with. We'll be starting in verse, uh, verse 16. And as you're turning there, one of the things that's important to realize, some background here, is that Luke, the author of this, remember Luke is a doctor. Luke is a doctor. He's a physician as well as a, an author of one of the Gospels. One of the things about him being wired as a physician is he notices when people aren't healthy. He notices when people are different or when they're not in the stream of what normal healthy people might look like in its various forms. And so Luke, more than any of the Gospels, is tuned in to when Jesus cares for the sick and the poor and the downtrodden. He, his writing highlights uh, heavily on those who are in the margins. 
So we see Jesus caring about prostitutes and drunks and leopards and children and the disabled and social outcasts, those that society often forgets or ostracizes. That's who Luke seems to focus in on. He wants to highlight capital letters, italicized, underlined, bold, when Jesus interacts with those who are on the fringes uh, and who need help. Now it says here this passage we're going to look at is in Nazareth. Now it's again fun that Nazareth is so, uh, it's on the forefront of our minds having been there just a few weeks ago. Um, And we also, in addition to going to Nazareth and and picturing this story and reading this story up on the mountainside there with the group, is we also uh, visited the ruins of several Jewish synagogues from the first century. And a Jewish synagogue, a rectangular shape, many of them were about the size from where I'm at to the back wall here of the gym. And we actually stood, uh, and many of those sat actually on some of the stone ruins and taught uh, through some of the passages where Jesus was in the synagogue. It was actually was built with stone bleachers, sort of, a kind of stair steps. And the important people would sit along those, kind of like the uh, season ticket holders, I guess, in the synagogue. They'd have their VIP seats. And common people would sit on the floor. And every synagogue was actually built in the direction of Jerusalem, believing the temple was important. And so the synagogue was a way to be reminded that God's presence was pointed in the direction uh, uh, there at the temple. And uh, they also had something called the Seat of Moses. And Jesus refers to this uh, in Matthew's account of the Gospel. And uh, there's a seat which in one of the synagogues you could actually still there, you can sit in it. And that's where after a passage would be read, the rabbi would go and sit in what's called the Seat of Moses because they would read from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses. So when you reflected on what was taught, you'd sit in the seat of Moses sharing interpretations and doing some teaching there. This was in every synagogue that existed in the time of Jesus. Now, in addition to the seat of Moses was something called the ark. The ark looked like a giant set of cabinets. And inside the cabinets, you'd open them up, and there, were, there was a giant scroll. And it was the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of the Bible, the books of Moses, written out on one giant piece of parchment. And you'd get the scroll, and you'd, maybe you've seen them before, you'd unroll it. They look like giant rolling pins, in a sense. And you'd roll them out and find the exact passage, and you'd have someone stand up and read it. And they would always be standing, and everyone would stand to hear the reading of it. And then they would roll the scrolls back up and take these huge uh, scrolls, and they would put them back in the cabinet and then shut the doors of the ark, and it would remain there. And so it was very important and a very sacred thing to pull open the ark and to actually roll out the scrolls and to read the passage. Now, one of the things that was done is that every male, every Jewish male, had an opportunity to be the reader. And so they would actually set up a plan as to who would read. And they would read you know, this passage and you know, Isaiah 14 is going to be Shmuley, and next one is going to be Isaiah 15 is going to be Jacob. And, and so there would be a schedule of who would read what chronologically you know, in these both the, the, the books of Moses as well as the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. So with that background in mind, I want us to look at this passage in Luke 4 because that background matters to how we read about this. So again, starting in verse 16. Now he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue 
as was his custom. So you can picture Jesus here going into a place that has the ark, it has the seat of Moses. He's seeing people um, that he knows. This, this synagogue is oriented in the direction of Jerusalem. Um, this was his custom. And he stood up to read. Now why did he stand up to read? Because he was the reader that day. It was on the schedule for Jesus to take the scroll out of the ark, unroll the scrolls, and to read from this particular passage. He was assigned this passage. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus rolls up the scroll, he puts it back, sits in the seat of Moses for a time of interpretation and responding to what's being read, and he says the most infuriating thing for anyone in the synagogue to hear. And he says, everything you've just heard about Isaiah's prophecy for the coming of the Messiah, you just saw him. You just heard him. It's me. They would be stunned and in silence as you are right now. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. And they came from his lips. And then he kept going. Surely you will quote, quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you have heard, what we heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he said, prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, in the, uh, the prophet. Yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up and they drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. We actually read this passage on the brow of the hill where they actually believe. And there's a, quite a drop off there. You shove someone off the edge of this cliff, they're not going to make it. Jesus has some bold things to say. Why are they angry? Because he said the, he, he, he alludes to the F word, fulfillment. What you've heard is being fulfilled right now. I'm that person that's coming to bring justice. And the Messiah would come, and the way you know is the Messiah because of the justice that would be brought. Notice what it says. Proclaim the good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom for prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. Set the oppressed free. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So it's important for us to ask, you know, what is justice? But I think it's also important for us as we talk about Jesus fulfilling this idea of being the bringer 
of justice is to also ask, what is injustice? This is an important discussion for us. What is injustice? Andy Crouch uh, wrote a book called Playing God, and in it he talks about a trip that he took to World Vision in India. And uh, the director there, um, Jaya Kumar Christian is the director's name, and Jaya Kumar Christian said, the poor are poor because someone else is trying to play God in their lives. That's a beautiful definition, sorry, an accurate definition of injustice. Injustice, next slide, is playing God in someone else's life. If we understand justice appropriately, we have to understand two key concepts in Scripture. And we've talked on these before, but not related them specifically to justice. The first is this idea of shalom. Now, some of us, we hear shalom, you think, oh, peace, you know, that's nice. Yeah, peace to you. And you go to Israel, they say, shalom alechem. You say, alechem shalom or shabbat shalom. It means like, hello, greeting, how are you? But really, in it, deep down, what does shalom mean? It's this Hebrew word that's way more than peace. It means wholeness in every way. Wholeness in every expression. And shalom is normally related to four specific areas. Right relationship with God. Right, right relationship with yourself. Right relationship with others. And right relationship with creation. Which means if we're pursuing the heart of God and God loves justice deeply, then followers of Jesus, we ought to be in pursuit of shalom. It's one of, the, one of the cool things about the name of our church, Renew. Shalom existed in the garden. There was right relationship in all four of those areas. Sin enters the world. It was broken. God continued to pursue and continues to pursue His broken world. And the goal is that shalom is brought down to earth, not fully fulfilled until... You see in Revelation, and Revelation is as weird and freaky and scary of a book as that might seem to some of us. All it is is Jesus wins and shalom has been restored. That's, that's Revelation. That's it. And so we are to be the renewed community that have been renewed. God is continually renewing us, but we actually join with Him in the renewal of all things, which won't fully happen in all of its place until the end of time. But God has a role for us with this idea of being shalom bringers and shalom embracers and shalom expressors. And then the Mennonites and the Anabaptist brothers and sisters in our area, actually, this is a huge value to them. They do a great job at this. And the second thing, which we've talked about here before, is the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God in the world. This is not, as Jay read at the beginning uh, with our call to worship, it's not about for people to simply attend church or think it's a good idea. When we pursue the kingdom of God, we're making our allegiance to the king of the universe. You know, that Lord's prayer that we pray, your will be done, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about us. You've heard me say this before. It's not about us taking earth to heaven when we die. It's about joining with God and bringing heaven to earth as we live. There's a huge difference in that. And so when we're shalom bringers and kingdom of God pursuers, it flows very easily into justice. Because that's what God cares about. Because when injustice happens, shalom is not present. It is not. 
So we're called to join with God's heart for justice. But I want to be really clear about something. If you miss everything that I say this morning about this idea of justice, I want it to be this. We are called, above all else, first and foremost, to join with God's heart, not join causes. Causes are important, but they are not of first importance. And that's, unfortunately, where justice jumps the rails sometimes with people, where we make the cause more important than the heart of the Father we're supposed to pursue. Above all else, we are called to join God's heart, not join causes. So let me just unravel maybe some four problems that I see when it comes to justice. Because if, we, if we're going to unpack justice the next several weeks, we've got to make sure we're pointing in the right direction at the right target. Here are four problems as we approach justice. And I fall into some of these categories. I need to be recorrected in these. Um, the first problem is justice is hip and cool. A quick, a quick glance on the cultural horizon will show that justice is really sexy. You know, it's the hot topic these days, especially for those under 35. We all want to be world changers. We want to end slavery and human trafficking. We want to end it now. We want to dig wells and provide shoes for poor kids in South Africa. We want to promote nuclear disarmament and world peace. We want to offer fair trade coffee and foster, and foster care programs to be started. These are tremendously honorable and incredibly important. And we should be about these things. But we can, if we're not careful, experience what my friend Tyler Wiggs Stevenson says, cause fatigue. You get like in your inbox or on Facebook or letters in the mail from people doing great causes, but you go, I, I, I mean, there's like, I can't keep up with all of these. I mean, even if, I'm, even if I'm not pursuing these, I'm just trying to read up on these. I'm still running out of time. I'm still overwhelmed just trying to learn about them. We have to be careful in our pursuit of these causes when they're hip and cool that they don't turn into just a moral crusade. And these causes, like I said, are tremendously noble, but that's not the complete picture of justice. It can easily turn into feel-good moralism and veiled narcissism. Here's what I mean by veiled narcissism. Because when our pursuits succeed, then us puts, on, puts us on the throne where we think we're the heroes of the story. And when our pursuits fail, we give up and become discouraged and turn cynical. Again, my friend that I mentioned, Tyler Wig Stevenson, he wrote a book. Um, called The World is Not Ours to Save, which is a provocative title. But he had this quote. He said, the Lord, he cares about justice deeply. And the Lord came to him one day very clearly in a prompting. And he said, Tyler, the world is not yours, not to save or to damn, only to serve the one whose it is. And I think that really anchors us well in justice and keeps us from just going off into a thousand different causes and thinking that we potentially could be the hero of the story because we could rescue these people. To put it bluntly, no, you can't. It's not about you. You are not the Savior of the world. If we get our calling wrong, then we begin to, begin to believe that God somehow needs us. We are never the hero of our stories. As followers of Jesus, it is always Jesus who's the hero of our story. 
Our job is not to solve the world's problems, but to faithfully bear witness to the one who cares deeply about justice. And if we're not careful, our discipleship in that process can take a back seat in order to make room for joining our causes and trying to accomplish big things for God. But here's the deal. God does not need our big plans. God needs us to be little Christs. Something Tyler says as well, which really helped me, is shifting. The question we're not asking is, how do we fix this problem? But instead it's asking, how do we live out the love of God in the midst of such brokenness in the world? The second is a biblical understanding of justice. The top one is an understanding of justice. The second one, the next problem is becoming involved in issues of justice is really messy. In theory, it sounds great. We want to be safe and predictable lives, but justice is emotional. It pits you against oppressive structures and challenges the status quo, which means it'll rock your world and it'll mess with power structures. It'll mess with relationships that you have and people that differ from you. And it's not for the faint of heart. Because of this, people often bail because it gets too messy and too hard. And the third problem is, is that we underemphasize justice. We overemphasize good news and underemphasize good works. And this happens because of two main themes in our understanding of the gospel. We think the gospel is individualistic. It's just me and Jesus. Just me and Jesus. And it's also an otherworldly gospel. It's only about when you die. Say a prayer so that when you die, you won't go to hell. It's fire insurance. It's a pretty limited understanding and view of the good news that Jesus came to offer us right now. As Dallas Willard said, if that's the goal of your life, that you just say a prayer so you avoid hell when you die, go now. If you've prayed the prayer, what are you waiting for? Just go. He must have something in store for us right now. So we can easily underemphasize justice because we overemphasize it's all about evangelism, it's all about good news. But problem number four, which I think is more important for us to focus on, especially when it's hip and cool and sexy these days, is that we can overemphasize justice. Here's what I mean by this. We overemphasize good works and conversely then underemphasize good news. A hundred years ago, a guy by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch delivered uh, at Yale some very famous lectures uh, called A Theology for the Social Gospel. He's the guy where we got the term social gospel. And it goes like this. Do the right thing, but downplay that it was for reasons motivated by a loving Savior and a King Jesus. Do it because ethically that's a good thing that Jesus would want us to do. And that's permeated the last hundred years into a lot of the mindset Christians or non-Christians, it doesn't matter. It's really infiltrated a lot of our thinking. We should do good things for the sake of doing good things. Altruistic. And Jesus was a nice guy. That's not really the motive of why we do it, but he's nice. And it's been, it's impacted the psyche of our culture. And, and let's be really honest here, okay? Evangelism has a reputation problem in our culture. As Andy Crouch says, working for justice is cool, proclaiming the gospel is not. 
And he goes on later to write, Our vision of justice has become secularized. We've lost the biblical conviction that God alone is good. Let's not forget that people need to hear about God's heart for justice and people need that proclaimed to them. If we do good works but don't share the good news, ironically, we reinforce injustice. Let that sink in. If I'm just serving their physical needs but don't actually address and intentionally refuse to address their spiritual needs, I am, in, I am actually involved in injustice. Remember, Jesus started in that Isaiah passage by saying He was here to proclaim good news to the poor and to prisoners. First two lines, proclamation, sharing the good news. So we cannot reduce the gospel proclaiming faith to simple moral or ethical principles and somehow think that we're honoring God in the process. We cannot neglect spiritual maturity and discipleship at the expense of a social program where we might throw Jesus in and sprinkle him in only if it's a natural fit. Biblical justice involves both good news and good works. And as followers of Jesus, we have to emphasize both. It's like two blades of the scissors. If you only have one blade, it makes cutting really, really difficult. We absolutely need both in our understanding of biblical justice. It's not, about telling, uh, it's not just about telling people good news. Our lives have to show that we care for others and serve them. It's about evangelism and social transformation. Alright, so very quickly, because I need to move on here, because this is a lot of stuff. How might we, very, very briefly, how might we, in an overview, engage in biblical justice issues as a church or as followers of Jesus? It has to be addressed, and to do this accurately, it has to be addressed on three different levels. The first level, level one, is relief. What we could just call giving people fish. People are hungry, give people fish, right? Immediate needs of clothing and food. This is like disaster relief situations. Homeless shelters. These are all good things. It's our involvement with manna. We do this with manna because manna is giving fish to people who need fish. The problem is, if you only stay on that level, people get hungry tomorrow and need more fish. It doesn't solve the problem. It helps. It serves. It's compassionate. It doesn't fix it. Okay? The second thing, level two, is development where we actually teach people how to fish. I don't want to just give you handouts all the time. I'm going to teach you to take a rod and actually learn how to fish with it so you can learn to do it yourself. Equipping others. This is a development, equipping, training. This is providing loans for people to run businesses on their own when they've been stuck and trapped in their own uh, cultural uh, structures that won't allow them to do it. It's teaching giving them confidence, equipping them, giving appropriate tools. It's not just handouts. It's a hand up at the same time. It gives dignity and empowers others to do it on their own. This is why we are involved with things like Daughters of Cambodia. It's training young girls with skills and education so they can actually go and do it themselves. We're teaching them how to fish in places like Daughters. But there's a third level. Normally we stop at two levels. There's a third level that we absolutely have to be involved in, and it's structural change. 
And that's where we are fighting for access for people to fish in the ponds. Just because I teach someone how to fish doesn't mean they're allowed to go fish at someone else's pond if there's a big sign that says no trespassing. And so they, they, they know how to fish. They want to do it. There are no ponds for them to actually do it. And so there are organizations and missions and, and, and ministries that are committed to saying we will fight for access to be a voice for the voiceless so you can do that. On a macro level, this may be in the areas of law and politics and economics, challenging the social structures that exist and upsetting the status quo that is not right and we say it must not remain this way because this is not what God has in store for Shalom for this structure to constantly keep people in a whirlpool where they can't come up for air. They want to and they can't. We live in a world where many of the fish ponds are owned and controlled by a powerful few people who set the rules and set up signs and say, I don't want certain people fishing near this pond. This may mean opportunities for us as a church to be involved in the future on a macro level of awareness or courageous and compassionate stances on justice issues, challenging some of those structural uh, issues of status quo. Now, fortunately, Christians and churches historically have worked to provide systemic changes for, a better, for the better of the world in the name of Jesus, motivated with a robust and balanced view of biblical justice. So here are just a few examples. I could go on and on, but here are four. Hospitals. You know, hospitals exist today because a group of Christians felt compelled by the gospel to care for people that Jesus loved and who Jesus died for, so they started clinics. And then the rest of the world said, wow, that's a really good idea. Maybe we should join those Christians in caring for the poor, caring for the sick. That's how hospitals were started. Sunday schools. They're different. When they started, they were different than what you and I think of uh, Today, they began as places to teach reading and writing to, illi to illiterate children who were stuck in child labor. And the only day they weren't allowed, they, they were by law given the day off was Sunday. And so to fight the system, they attempted to actually create spaces to have them learn to read and write so they didn't have to be in child labor situations. And the thing they taught them to read and write was the Bible. That's how Sunday school started. William Wilberforce, some of you know this, he's a hero of mine. In the 1880s, he worked for his entire life, motivated by the good news of Jesus, to overthrow slavery in England. And it cost him his life physically. It wore him out. The stress was so bad on his life um, that it eventually took his life pursuing this effort in the parliament in England, which ultimately paved the way for the United States to actually abolish slavery because of what they saw happen in England, because of what William Wilberforce did, because of what was motivated by the gospel. Saying this ain't right, this structure ain't right, because there's image of God stuff here when it comes to slaves, and we have to stop. And the last one, organizations even today like International Justice Mission started by Gary Haugen, a former government official who quit his job with the government, a well-paying, comfortable, influential job, who quit his job to start International Justice Mission to fight legally and organizationally against major injustices in the world, especially child labor and human trafficking. 
They work with several dozen countries around the world in partnership with their governments to say, you need to shut down this brothel. We need to arrest these pimps. We need to do this because this ain't right. Your laws say that's illegal, but you're turning your head and not addressing this. Arrest them. If that's your law, live up to your law. And they do it all the time. And if you follow them on Facebook or, or Twitter, sometimes it brings tears to my eyes to say, today, 12 girls were freed from sexual captivity after several years in it because they were rescued by the IJM team. They literally are on the front lines of seeing girls and boys rescued from this type of lifestyle. See, when Christians are motivated by love, possessing grit and perseverance, and they see change happen, then hospitals and literacy and slavery and foster care and supporting battered women and rescuing women out of, uh, out of brothels overseas, the larger society begins to go, I can get on board with that. You got room for me? I'm not a Christian, but I want to actually join you in the pursuit of that kind of justice. And then guess what? It becomes then an opportunity for evangelism. Say, here's why we're motivated by this. Because instead of pursuing causes first, we're pursuing the heart of the Father who cares about justice. God loves justice. Jesus confronted injustice in his lifetime and he sided with the marginalized. He experienced injustice in his death on the cross and he calls us to live as redeemed people in light of the empty tomb as advocates of justice with both good news and good works. Now if the tomb is empty, what does the Lord require of us renew? That we do justly. That we don't just like mercy or be merciful, but that we love mercy. And that we do it in a way of humility of realizing we are not the heroes of our own story. And when we walk humbly with our God, it means that we take ourselves off the throne and stop convincing ourselves that we're the Savior in this particular cause. And we begin to say, this is about Jesus, who is the King, who brings the kingdom of God in pursuit of shalom, and He invites us into that process. So how do we do that? We join God's heart first before we join causes. Here's what we want to do. We want to make sure that this isn't just some good moral teaching. One of the reasons I love that we take communion every time that we're together is because it forces me and Doug when we teach to make sure that our message doesn't float out there as we should be good people. And oh yeah, it's about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If the teaching and communion are jarring in how different they are, if we have whiplash, then we didn't teach very well. Because everything that we do should be tied back to this. Because justice is tied back to this. And if justice doesn't orbit around this, it's not biblical justice. It's just a bunch of good ideas of good moral programs and veiled narcissism. Because we are not the king. He is. So we're going to invite you all, in light of this, how do we respond to an empty tomb? Justice. How do we respond in terms of our awareness and thought and process? It, it, I think what, what the response is of today is to actually repent of our sin, and some of that may be cultural sin. Maybe of some things we've done we shouldn't have done, but maybe it's things we should, that we should have done but we haven't been a part of. 
maybe we need to repent as a church. Maybe we need to repent as a culture. Say, Lord, we have not been involved in issues of justice that reflect your heart. But I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, wherever you're at on your journey, and if you're new with us, we just have one rule when it comes to communion. And it's this. If you're here to receive grace and mercy from Jesus, you're welcome at the table. And if you're not, we're not going to make fun of you. We're not going to treat you weird, but we just ask that you not come if that's not your pursuit. But if you're here to pursue grace and mercy from Jesus, you're welcome at the table. And so the, the Schwenksville House Church is going to come up and they're going to serve us. Now I want to say this, we're doing this before the intermission and, and um, we want to allow uh, that opportunity to happen. However, if you want to take communion with your family and want to wait, communion will be available after intermission when we sing. And so if that's something you want to do all together to family, as a family, we give you that opportunity to do that. But I want to invite you to come to the table to remember that what Christ has done was an act of justice on your behalf. He didn't give you what you deserve, so He didn't give you the justice that you really needed. But He pursued you because, guess what? You were oppressed. You were a slave. You had no hope. You had no future. You were a spiritual orphan. You were a widow. You had nothing in your corner when it came to hope. And He pursued you when He didn't have to. And He said, I want you part of my family. And because he's done that with you, then he says, okay, now it's your turn. I want you to partake in this. Pursue the heart of the Father. But when you partake in this stuff, what I want you to do after that is now I want you to break yourself open and pour yourself out to a hurting world in my name. So as you come, realize Jesus has done this for you. But as you take it, as you drink this, may you realize I have a role to play in my faithful response and obedience to what God has done for me. And that is to break myself open and to pour myself out to a hurting world. So the house church is going to come, and they're going to serve, and we invite you to come, if you are here, to receive grace and mercy from Jesus.